If you would, as you're finding your seats, open up your scriptures to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We're going to be in the same passage we were in last week and hopefully dig a little bit deeper this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. If you would read along with me, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your testimony, Lord, your actions in our life, Lord, the The fact that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son, Lord, to die for our sins, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we examine this phrase, God is love, if we examine the word love this morning, that not only we have a deeper understanding, but we are encouraged to act and love as you loved. An active, purposeful, sacrificial love, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord. I I pray that the Holy Spirit challenges us as we go through your word. In your son's name, amen. Last week I said this phrase, God is love, is probably one of the most quoted phrases in all of Scripture. We see it twice in the passage that we're going to be going over last week and the next few weeks, and that's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, which says, Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And we see it also in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. As we examine this phrase, again, I want to spend some time this morning looking at this. I do want to remind us that this is not where John starts. I mean, think about this. We don't see the phrase... God is love, till chapter 4, verse 8, and that's towards the end of the epistle. This is five chapters within this epistle. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't make it any less true. God is love, for sure. At the same time, I think it's significant that John doesn't start here. He clearly starts somewhere else in this letter, and he starts with this. God is light. Actually, if you would look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is where, where John starts. He says this. This is the message we have heard from him. He's talking about Jesus. This is what we've heard from him and proclaim to you. In other words, John is saying, we, epistles, or we apostles who have heard firsthand Jesus' message, this is his message, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. God is light means 
as we went over this passage uh, um, a few months ago, that God is righteous, he is pure, he is holy. And in him there is no darkness at all. And this is what John claims. This is a message we have heard from him, we've heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you. In other words, this is what John is saying. If, if we had to sum up Jesus' message, it's not God is love. He starts by saying God is light. He starts with God's holiness. And not only that, he's also righteous. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. It says this in verse 29, chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John doesn't start with God's love. John starts with God's holiness. And this is what one commentator said about this. I think it's interesting. He says, to John, God is both love... 1 John 4.16, and light, 1 John 1.5. But the apostolic order is significant. It matters that light comes before love. God's holiness, he is light, shows our unholiness. We are stained black with sin and thus need of a crucified Christ to wash us clean. God's love. I want you to think about this because not just John that starts with God's holiness. I mean, the, the whole Bible does the same thing in a sense. Right? The Old Testament starts by emphasizing God's holiness. It's why so many people struggle with the, the Old Testament, because it exposes them to a holy, righteous God. A God that will punish sin. Even though we do see God's mercy and love and grace throughout the whole Old Testament, it's not till the New Testament that it's clearly seen in the person of Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. Just like 1 John, the Bible starts with the holiness of God and then moves to the love of God. And this is a phrase I've been saying since we've been in 1 John. You can't understand the love of God unless you start with the holiness of God. You can't understand the love of God unless you start with the holiness of God. And, and honestly, I think this is where we get in trouble. With the phrase, God is love. We don't interpret this phrase from a biblical concept of love. Instead, many, and I would, I would say most, interpret this phrase with their own cultural understanding of love. In our culture, love is closely related to the idea of tolerance. In our culture, you're unloving if you're judgmental at all. If you judge at all, you're considered unloving. And it goes beyond this. You're unloving in our culture... If you do anything less than 100% affirm and celebrate everyone's philosophical views, theological beliefs, personal beliefs, or personal moral convictions, if you don't 100% affirm or celebrate personal beliefs and lifestyles, you're unloving. 
In other words, if you say something is wrong, theologically or morally, that is an unloving act in our culture. That's our cultural understanding of love. Really, in our culture, love and tolerance are equated. And here's the scary thing. Because that's an unbiblical understanding of love. And people interpret the phrase, God is love, with an unbiblical understanding of love, thereby defining the very essence of God wrongly. Unbiblically. Douglas O'Donnell writes, a theologian, in his commentary on 1 John, says this, The contemporary concept of a loving God, or a God whose very essence is love, is that he cannot and will not judge anyone for anything. In other words, he's 100% tolerant of all actions, all lifestyles, all beliefs. He writes, God is love means that God is tolerant of all theological perspectives and lifestyles. And that's why many Christians and non-Christians alike celebrate the phrase, God is love. And often, and I would say more often than not, in our culture, within churches even, they are saying something that's completely unbiblical. They're saying God is a God that that is tolerant of all theological perspectives and lifestyles, no matter how unbiblical, no matter how sinful. And I hear this all the time. I, I just see it. All the time. Just this week, actually, I love listening to Al Mohler's The Briefing. You've heard us talk about this from the pulpit. Um, if, if you, uh, Al Mohler was the president of my seminary, and he does like a 15-minute, what he calls briefing, just looking at the news from the previous day or what's going on that week, and just looks at it from a Christian perspective. And this week, Thursday, he was talking about a pastor, a very prominent, popular pastor, the pastor of the church Hillsong, where we get the worship um, songs from and the, their worship uh, uh, worship band is popular. They go throughout the whole entire world. Honestly, the movement, Hillsong movement, has gone throughout the whole entire world. The, the founding pastor of Hillsong, the senior pastor of the main church in Hillsong in Australia, made this argument that God is love and therefore will not judge anyone. I heard from a pastor, it's not just popular megachurches across the world, from our conservative town, a conservative church, a pastor from our own community. I was in the crowd listening, and he was talking to a bunch of non-believers, and he was supposedly sharing the gospel, and he quotes First John saying, God is love, and then he said, quote, this means he will not hold your sins against you. Without mentioning grace, Without mentioning Christ or his death, without mentioning faith, without mentioning the gospel. Listen, God is a holy God, meaning he will, he will for sure hold your sins against you unless you put your faith in Christ. I mean, that's the gospel message. That's the good news that Christ paid the price for us and that our 
sins have been paid for by him on the cross. Listen, the fact that God is love does not negate his holiness. And because of this, I really wanted to take some time last week, this week, and the next two weeks, really examining this phrase, God is love. And here's a question I want to answer. What is biblical love? What is biblical love? We started looking at this last week by looking at Genesis 22. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to look at that message because I think we we saw a clear example of God's sacrificial love in Genesis 22. But in all honesty and reality, there's no better passage to gain a biblical understanding of love than 1 John 4, 7 through 21. One commentator put it this way. Dozens of times in this letter alone, John uses the word love. Primarily, he speaks of three kinds of love. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. The concept of love is so important to John that three times he discusses it in this letter. This is the third time. This is the third passage he discussed love. The first time was in chapter 2 where he talked about love as evidence for our fellowship with God. In chapter 3, love was an evidence of our sonship with God. Now in chapter 4, John comes to the apex of, the, of what love is. Uh, he traces the meaning of love to its source. God is love. I believe in this one passage, we have the clearest definition of love in all of Scripture, with probably 1 Corinthians 13 being the second. I mean, think about this. In 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21, 14 verses, the word love is repeated 29 times. That's averaging two times a verse. To put that in perspective, love is addressed here more than all four Gospels. So if you want to know what a biblical definition of love, if you want to know what biblical love is, this passage is a good place to start. And really, as I was going through this passage and studying it, I found seven aspects of biblical love. Seven aspects of biblical love. Today, we're just going to go over three of them. Again, the goal is answering this question. What is biblical love? So here's my three points this morning. Biblical love starts with God. Biblical love is sacrificial, and biblical love is active. Biblical love starts with God, biblical love is sacrificial, and biblical love is active. So the first point is biblical love starts with God. I want to be clear on this. God is not defined by love. God is not defined by love. This is extremely important, especially in our culture that tries to define God by an unbiblical understanding of love. Instead, right, God is not defined by love. Instead, God defines love. Let me put it another way. Love doesn't tell us who God is. The character of God tells us what love is. So we need to start with God to define love. Because verse 7 says, love is from God. And verse 8 says, God is love. God's character reveals to us what love is. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, 
for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, John, John starts this, this portion of scripture just with love, right? Beloved, and this church that I love, like I love you guys, beloved. That's how John starts, right? His love for this church. And then he says, let us love one another, right? Let us express love to each other. This church I love, love each other. That's what he's saying. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, right? And throughout John's epistle, we've seen that love is a sign. It's a sign that you have been born again, right? That you're a new creation in Christ. Not only that, it's also a sign that you know God, that you have a relationship with him. In other words, love is a sign of salvation. And the opposite of this is true, too. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. In other words, a lack of love is a sign that you haven't been born again, that you don't have a relationship with God, that you aren't truly saved. And why is this? Well, verse 8, the end of it says this, because God is love. There's that phrase. God is love. This is what Douglas O'Donnell continues to write about this phrase. He says this, Many verses in Scripture start with God is, and then add an attribute like God is mighty, God is merciful, but only a few speak of God's essence. John gives us three most memorable in the gospel, he records Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. That's the gospel of John 4, verse 24. In 1 John, we read near the beginning that God is light. We just went over that. God is holy, right? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And now towards the end of the epistle, that God is love. John is not saying that love is a quality that God possesses. Rather, he is saying that love is the essence of God's divine being. What's interesting about this is it's completely unique to the Christian God. This is completely unique to the Christian God. Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, which I, I recommend is a good book. Being a pastor from New York, right, he heard all the time people argue that all religions were the same. Right? And that the core, right, the, the core of every religion is a loving deity of some sort. So he searched to see if this was true in the book, and, and Keller discovered that only the biblical God has love as the dominant ruling attribute, as a dominant ruling attribute. For example, Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all. Right? And so love is an action of a person. How could that be the core of the deity? Or another example is Islam. It speaks of a merciful God. If you talk to a Muslim, they will talk about God's mercy. But never about God's loving mercy. In fact, to a Muslim, such language of love that the Christian uses would be considered disrespectful of the divine. And I would claim, honestly, outside of Christianity, it is impossible for a monotheistic religion— to claim that love is the dominant ruling attribute of their God. What's monotheistic mean? It's a fancy word, but it means exactly what it sounds like. Mono means one, theistic means God. So a religion that believes in only one God, 
monotheistic, that's Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and so on. Right? Out of all the monotheistic religions, only the Christian God of Scripture can possibly be a God of love. Why? Because at the heart of God's love is the Trinity. Is the Trinity. Think about this. How could a God be characterized by love as a foundational, foundational attribute of his very nature is if from eternity past he's been lonely? Had no one to love. But the Bible, or the biblical God, right, is a God of community who from eternity past was in a perfect loving relationship before he created anything. One commentator said this, the eternal love between the Father, Son, and Spirit that existed before creation spills over into his creation as God continuously gives him of himself for the benefit of his creation. That, what, that is what makes the statement, God is love, so remarkable. God didn't create because he was lonely. You hear that? That's a complete misconception in Christianity. God did not create because he was lonely, because he needed to love. God is perfect within himself, meaning he was love before creation. God is self-sufficient. He had perfect relationship from eternity past. He didn't create us because he needed us. He created us because he wanted to. He wanted to share his love with us. His Trinitarian love that spilt over into his creation. This is what the Gospel of John 17, verse 24 says. Father, this is a prayer from Jesus. This is amazing. Chapter 17, by the way, in the Gospel of John is an amazing chapter. This This is Jesus interceding praying to the Father for his disciples. If you want to know what Jesus intercedes for us, chapter 17 is probably pretty close. It says this in in John chapter 17, verse 24, Father, he's praying to his Father, I desire that they also, he's talking about his disciples, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. His Trinitarian love spilling out to his disciples, those that he created. Therefore, if we truly want to know what love is, a biblical understanding of love, we need to look at God. We need to start with God because biblical love starts with God. And when we look at God, we see that biblical love is sacrificial. It sacrifices. John Stott wrote, while the origin of love is in the being of God, the manifestation of love is in the coming of Christ. So the first point is biblical love starts with God. The second point this morning is biblical love is sacrificial. And to be honest, we spent a whole sermon on that last week, so I'm going to go over this point very quickly. Verse 9 says this, In this, or in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Manifest, the, the Greek word that's translated manifest here, just it really means made seen, right? Made seen. 
well, how, how is that? How could that be? How could God's love be seen? God, first of all, is spirit, which means he's not seeable. And secondarily, love is an abstract concept. Right? When you think of love, you usually don't think of something you can see, touch, or weigh. But look what John says, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest, seeable among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love was made manifest. It was made seeable in the life and death of Christ. And, and, and specifically in this verse, in the father's sacrifice of his son. Again, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, I would encourage you to listen to it online. But look at verse 10 because it gets even clearer. In this is love. And we want to know what biblical love is? This is it. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. God's love is sacrificial. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. That's a fancy word. It's probably not a word you use this morning, getting ready for church. Unless you're ultra, ultra spiritual. There's a joke in there somewhere, I don't know. <laughs> Propitiation means to appease someone's wrath. To, to, to take in someone's wrath. I just, we spent a lot of time in this last week, but I just want to say, this is not my notes. This verse 10 doesn't make sense unless you start with the holiness of God. Verse 10 makes absolutely no sense unless you start with love. Verse 10 makes no sense in our culture. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for our sins, to take on God's wrath. That makes no sense unless you start with a holy God that has to punish sin. But out of his love, found a way to punish sin so that we don't have to take that punishment. He sent his son to die for us and be the propitiation for our sins. And the culture doesn't get that. If you have an unbiblical definition of love, you're not going to get that. Again, we spent a lot of time in this last week. I need to move on. We looked at God's sacrifice. God the Father sacrificed his son so that we may live, and God the Son was a willing sacrifice. Why? Well, John 15 13 says this, greater love, there's that word love, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Biblical love starts with God. Biblical love is sacrificial. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, time we have left. Biblical love is active. Biblical love is active. Again, I want to remind us what we're doing. We're looking at the character of God to see what love is. Look at verse 10 again. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's an active love. It's a pursuing love. Listen to what it says. It says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. We didn't love him. And how did he love us? He actively sent his son. He sent 
action he sent his son while we were sinners. Listen, while we were running away from him, while we wanted nothing to do with him, heading for destruction, he actively sent his son to die for us. I want to take a second. I just want you to think. Think of how shallow our cultural understanding of love is. Our concept of love is, is passive in our culture. Biblical love is active. Our cultural understanding of love is passive. I mean, the word tolerance itself is a very passive word. Tolerate. And it's most simplistic understanding. I know there's deeper understanding to tolerance than this, but its most simplistic understanding is just leaving people alone. Leaving people alone. Leaving people alone in their philosophies. Leaving people alone in their their theologies, leaving people alone in their, in their beliefs, leaving people alone in their lifestyles. Even if they're false philosophies, even if they're false beliefs, even if their lifestyles are sinful and leading to destruction. That's not biblical love. God's love is active. It's active. It pursues. It confronts. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. I think it's in the three synoptic Gospels, this story. It's for sure in Matthew. I think it's all three. But I love Mark, and there's a reason, and I'll point it out to you. And we're all probably familiar with this passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If you're not familiar, we're about to get familiar with it. So, verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says this. And as he was setting out on, a, on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher. Right, this is Jesus. A guy comes up and starts talking to Jesus and calls him, Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now let me be clear. Jesus is not, not claiming he's God here. You know what he's doing? He's actually challenging this person's personal beliefs. He says, you call me good teacher. You know what that means? Do you know the implications of that? He says, no one's good besides God. Do you, what do you think? Where are you at? Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, All of these I have kept from my youth. You know what's crazy about this? He probably thought that. Right? We all know that he's a sinner. He didn't keep these. But he was under a false system of beliefs that taught God blessed those financially who kept the moral law. And we learn from the other gospel that that this man was very wealthy and probably thought God has, was blessing him with wealth because he kept the law so perfectly. It's a false understanding. It's a false belief. It's a false theology. Look what Jesus does in verse 21. And this is, this is the difference. This is why I like Mark's, because it says this in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved this man. And he actively loved. You know how he actively loved? Look what he does. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. You know what Jesus did right there? 
He pointed out his sin. He pointed out his sin. That's how Jesus actively loved this man. He pointed to the fact that this man was making an idol out of wealth. He's saying, trust me, don't trust your wealth. Go sell it all and trust me, come, come follow me. And he doesn't just point out his sin, he points him to joy. He points him to true treasure. Look, look what it says. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The, destruction, or the, the, the direction you're going is leading to destruction. Come follow me and find joy. Find true treasure. That's how Jesus loved this man. He actively challenged this man's personal beliefs. He actively pointed out this man's sin, his false worship. He warned this man of the destruction of idolatry by pointing him to true joy and happiness in a relationship with God. That's how Jesus loved. You know, in our culture, to point out someone's sin is considered intolerant, unloving, narrow-minded, bigoted. In the Bible, look what it says in verse 21. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And here's the thing. You know what the results of Jesus' love was? I, I say this to encourage you. Because I know there's people in this room me included, that, that have tried to speak, to, to, to try to speak truth, right? Out of love, because we truly love that person, a relative who Jesus did. Look what happened. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus lost the relationship. Listen, sometimes biblical love Active love will offend. Will offend those that we're loving. We don't hear about this man again. Listen, biblical love is active. Turn back to 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10. It says this, 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son. Again, I want to focus on this phrase. Not that we have loved God, but that he, he loved us. And in his love, he acted. And what did he do? He sent his son. He actively sent his son. I want you to think about this, right? And I just mentioned this. Who's acting here? Well, you can say it. Who's acting? God. He's, he, he, right? That he loved us. He's acting. Who's passive here? Us. Not that we loved God. He loved us, not that we loved God. Now, I want you to think biblically here. Who was, and listen to the word I'm using, who was offended, right? In other words, who was sinned against, man or God? God. Who was the offender, the, right? Man. Now, I want you to think about this. Think clearly. If there's going to be reconciliation between God and man, then, don't you think the offender, the sinner, should be the one to initiate it, to be pursuing it? To desire it? Let me just give you an example because it's hard for us to think with the divine and mankind. So if you just think of a relationship, right? And if you're a parent, this probably will make sense. If my son 
August, punched my daughter in the face for absolutely no reason. And if you're a parent, you may have seen this example. Just think about that. If my son punched my daughter and, and truly punched her in the face and truly there was absolutely no reason, he just got frustrated about something, turned around, punched her in the face, I'm probably going to have a talk with my son, right? On what happened. And, and, and tell him he needs to go reconcile the relationship. He needs to go ask for forgiveness. I'm probably not going to put the weight of reconciliation on my daughter. Who was the victim? Who was sinned against? She was offended. But God's love is so overwhelming that it defines normal convention. He pursued us even though he was the one sinned against. And on top of that, he pursues us even though we wanted nothing to do with reconciliation. Romans 5.8 says this, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He actively loved us anyways, even though we wanted nothing to do with him. You know, if he didn't actively love love us too, we'd all be doomed. If he was passive, if he just tolerated us, if he tolerated our beliefs, tolerated our sins and didn't intervene, we'd all be doomed. You know the craziest thing about that? He'd still be just. He'd still be holy. He'd still be a good God if he sent every single person to hell. But because God is love, radical love, his love overflowed and he actively pursued us, changed our hearts, and sent his son to die for our sins. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. That's radical love. And look what it says in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I want to end this sermon with a question. Are we modeling this radical love? This love that's both sacrificial and active? Here's a tough question. Honestly, I keep telling people, I'm preaching to myself when I'm up here. This question about halfway through the week, I'm like, man, this is a great point. Just hit me hard. This is a tough question for us, church. Are you actively pursuing reconciliation with those who have offended you? Actively pursuing. Not passively waiting for them to ask for forgiveness. Actively pursuing reconciliation. Even though you are the one wronged. And I just want to, let me give a side note because I want to make sure we're clear on this. There is a point where you let a person go. 
There was a point where you let him go and just pray for him, right? I mean, that's what Jesus did, Mark 10, 22, disheartened by the saying, he, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. You know what? Jesus didn't go chase after him. But he only let him go after he actively pursued him with the truth. To be honest, I, I don't think most of us that are struggling with relationships are faulting on that side. It's usually the other side. This is what I see all the time within the church. A, a, a Christian getting hurt or offended or even sinned against and responding by saying, I'm out of here. Right? I'm done. I'm done with that relationship. We've even coined the phrase church hurt, right? That's a popular phrase within Christianity now, which means, and this is what, normally when you hear that phrase church hurt, it means someone within the church hurt you. There's like 500 of us. Can all of us hurt you (laughs) at once somehow? And so they leave the church without even pursuing reconciliation. Listen, we're called to love differently. And here's what I see all the time. When I see people, the offender, pursue the, wait, the offended, pursue the offender, I see this all the time, not, not, not 100% of the time, but most of the time. The offender not even realizing that they offended and more than willing to say they're sorry. I don't know how many times in counseling we've seen that as pastors. Listen, we're called to model God's love. We're called to actively love, not passively love, not just tolerate other Christians. Actively love even those that hurt us, even those that have sinned against us. Listen, if you're holding some kind of unforgiveness in your heart right now, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. One of two things. It's either or. You have to do one. Biblically, you're commanded to do one of these two things. The first one is this. Let it go. Let it go. Cover up a sin in love. Cover up an offense in love. And I want to be clear, that's active. Right? I mean, just listen, this is 1 Peter 8, or 4 8. Above all, this is what it says. And just tell me if this sounds active. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Does that not sound active? Let me read it again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's not passive, it means to actively pursue the relationship by purposely forgetting the offense. Actively pursue a relationship, reconciliation, by purposely forgetting the offense, by letting it go, by not dwelling on it anymore. Taking the thoughts captive and said, no, I'm not going to think about it anymore. It's done. It's past. I forgive that person. We're moving on. And I'm going to actively pursue a relationship with them now. That's your first option. The second option is this. Love actively pursues reconciliation. Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Do you hear this? This is, this is modeling God's love. This is the offended pursuing the offender. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This is modeling God's love. And how are we to do it? Listen to what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, don't gossip. 
Don't embarrass him. Don't talk bad behind his back. Don't slander his name. Between you and him alone. And why would you do this? Well, you get the motivation too. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Because if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The heart is reconciliation. The goal is reconciliation. It's not to just go rub the person's sin in their face. It's reconciliation that we can have relationship again. The motive is to gain your brother, to mend a relationship. The goal is to model God's active love. Incredible, amazing, sacrificial, active love. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Biblical love starts with God. Biblical love is sacrificial, and biblical love is active. Active. It actively pursues reconciliation. Listen, it actively pursues each other. It actively pursues each other. Church, let's love one another. Let's love one another. Let's be a witness to our community and how we love one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I know this morning was a convicting sermon, Lord, is a convicting passage, Lord. As we look at your love for us, Lord, that's just convicting. How could we possibly love the way you've loved us, Lord? Yet that's our calling. That's our calling, especially with our relationships within the church, Lord, that that we pursue one another, that, that we actively seek reconciliation with each other, Lord, that we actively love each other. God, that's only done through your spirit. I pray that your spirit moves within our church, Lord. That we love each other so much that it's a model to Tehachapi. That Tehachapi looks at Country Oaks and goes, man, that church, they, they love each other. They truly are brothers and sisters. And there's something different about their love. That our love points to you, God. That our love is a witness. It's a testimony of, of who you are and your love, Lord. Help that be true of our church, Lord. I pray for myself, Lord, that struggles. God, help me pursue those relationships, God. Give me the courage. I thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you have done for us, Lord. Without you, we would be doomed. But out of your love, you actively sent your son. You sacrificed your own son so that we can have reconciliation, a relationship with you. Let that be our motivation. In your son's name, amen.